Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. And try to keep acronyms at a minimum. Um, I'll try. We're <laughs> trying to appeal to a more general audience. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, we're talking about arguably the biggest law related to homelessness passed last year that will take effect this year, and that is CARE Court. It's Governor Gavin Newsom's signature program to provide care for people suffering from the most severe mental health crises on the streets of California by court order. So for our discussion of care courts, we have, as always, the perfect guest. We will be talking with Dr. Veronica Kelly, Director of Behavioral Health Services for Orange County, which, like L.A., has volunteered as one of the first counties to set up the new system. But first... It's time for our look at the wildest and kookiest California housing story in recent weeks. What is it, Liam? It's the avocado of the fortnight. This segment that I've missed so much. I've also missed you, Liam. <laughs> and I've missed you, Manuela. I'm glad we're back together again. I am too. And where are we going together this time? Well, we are certainly this time headed to a wild, madcap, kooky place. It is the internet. Listeners who tuned into the last episode will know that I just spent a few weeks on vacation in my home country of Argentina, where I very much disconnected from the internet. So I'm a little bit terrified of going here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Manuela, maybe you should be. <laughs> so this new section of the internet that we're going to be talking about is all the rage. It's called OpenAI or ChatGPT. And it uses artificial intelligence to draw pictures or answer questions about just any topic you could think of. So depending on who you talk to about OpenAI, it's going to totally revolutionize the world and making engineers, screenwriters, even reporters like you and me totally redundant and out of work through robot scripted code and prose. Or it's going to totally fall flat like many other much-hyped technologies. Do you remember all those self-driving cars that we're supposed to have by now? Yeah, like that Tesla video of a self-driving car from a few years ago that maybe wasn't as genius as it seemed at the time. For this episode, I decided to take ChatGPT out for a spin to see what answers it has for us on California housing issues. It's like we have two interviews in this episode. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so here is my first question for the chatbot. How should we solve the housing crisis in California? Here we go. Quote, California's housing crisis is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted solution. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. Some possible steps that could be taken to address this crisis include, one, increasing the supply of housing, two, encouraging denser development, three, providing financial assistance to low-income households, four, implementing rent control, five, addressing zoning laws, six, increasing funding for affordable housing. And the chatbot finished up by saying, quote, it's important to note that these solutions alone will not solve the housing crisis. It would require a comprehensive and well-coordinated effort by the state government, local governments, private sector, and community organizations. This really does sound like a report by the legislative analyst's office. <laughs> and I'm only more scared than I was that this thing is coming after all of our jobs. 
So given that we've just solved California's housing crisis, and thanks, ChatGPT, Thank um, I decided to ask the bot a couple other questions. Such as? What is the best podcast on housing? <laughs> oh, okay. What did it say? Well, it seems, based on the answer to this question, there are some major flaws in the AI. Ah. Quote, it is difficult to say which is the best podcast on housing issues, as it's a matter of personal opinion. However, some popular podcasts that discuss housing issues include, quote, the Bigger Pockets podcast, Affordable Housing, the Housing Hour, which maybe we should have called our podcast, the Rent Report, and the Habitat. I'm not hearing Gimme Shelter, Liam. Yeah, that's because it's not on there. I am appalled. <laughs> also, none of these are Rolling Stones references, which <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> already exactly. brings them a point down. <laughs> Very important for your housing podcast to have a solid musical reference. Okay, what was the last question? Who writes better housing stories? Liam Dillon of the LA Times? Or Manuela Tobias of Cow Matters? You would ask this question, Liam. But I already know enough about this bot's lackluster taste to not be offended <laughs> by whatever follows. Yes, and here's the response. Quote, I am not able to compare the quality of writing of Liam Dillon of the Los Angeles Times and Manuela Tobias of Cow Matters as I don't have enough information about their housing stories. Both of them are respected journalists, and it is likely they have written well-researched <laughs> and well-written articles on the topic of housing. You forgot to ask who has a more charming podcast presence, but maybe you are scared of the answer, Liam. I was very scared to ask that question, but quite the diplomacy for Chatbot with respect to... Very diplomatic. Okay, so now that we have all this frivolity out of the way, let's get to our main topic. So we're going to talk about CARE Courts, officially known as the CARE Act, which I would argue is among the most important laws passed by the California legislature last year. Of course, I'm a little biased because of the focus of my reporting on housing and homelessness, but this was the governor's top legislative priority last cycle. This year, the law is set to go into effect in the first cohort of seven counties and L.A., home to about 40% of the homeless population. The rest of the state will follow in December 2024. So listeners may recall that we had an episode on CARE Court as it was winding its way through the legislative process last year, where we interviewed my colleague at the Times, Hannah Wiley, about it what the proposal entailed, and its politics. But we do need a refresher now that it is law, Manuela. So for starters, California has a huge issue with homelessness. Around 170,000 people sleep on the street or in shelters on any given night, which is likely an undercount. And many of those people, though not the majority, suffer from some form of mental illness. UCLA calculated just over 4,500 people living on the streets of L.A. County alone have a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. There are two problems, however, in getting help for them. One is the statewide mental health system is woefully under-resourced in terms of mental health facilities and doctors. And as we always say, there's a dire shortage of affordable housing. The other issue is that family members who want to force their loved ones to get help because they're not seeking it themselves run up against pretty strict eligibility rules depending on who you ask. This program is designed to A, better coordinate the healthcare systems that exist and are growing, and B, lower the barriers loved ones and public health officials face to force people into care. Okay, so that's a pretty good bird's eye view of what's going on here, but how is this care court program supposed to help? So it stands for Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Court. 
Essentially, the system allows anyone from friends and family members to first responders to petition a civil court to create a care plan for people who meet specific criteria. Before this, Liam, only trained professionals could do so. After a court-ordered clinical diagnosis, if they qualify, the person would get legal counsel and a supporter or an advocate to walk them through the process, as well as a care plan that can include recommended treatment, medication, and housing. Medication can be court-ordered but not forcibly administered, and that was a big point that advocates fought for in this process. During the year-long care court process, a participant will have to attend hearings to make sure that they're adhering to the plan and that counties are providing the court-ordered services. Sounds like you're leaving out a part here that sort of is like, or else, you know, what happens if this doesn't? happen. So if a person refuses to comply or fails out, they could be considered by the court for conservatorship. That's where they give up almost any autonomy over their life because a court declares that they can't make decisions for themselves and someone else has to do that for them. On the other hand, the county would face steep daily fines for failing to provide the services that that person needs, be that medication, treatment, or housing. This accountability portion as it relates to counties brings us back to your other point about the availability of resources, doctors, and housing. Is California actually prepared to make the system work? We simply don't know, Liam. The way that the law shaped up after its final hearings is that seven counties, including San Francisco, Orange, and San Diego, will go first in a sort of pilot run, and then the rest of the state will follow. So we'll have a lot to watch this fall. But when I looked into this question for a story with my colleague Jocelyn Weiner at CalMatters, advocates and mental health professionals repeatedly told us that the system was not actually equipped with massive wait lists for mental health treatment and beds at board and care facilities, which is housing for people with more intense needs like meals and laundry and other types of services up and down the state. The shortage of mental health professionals is another huge issue. Some counties are estimating they need thousands more workers just to make their mental health systems function. Wow. But also the state's been spending like billions of dollars already on this, right? It has. And that's the point that the administration made over and over while pushing this proposal. In the last couple of budget cycles, we saw $14 billion for housing and clinical residential placements, as well as $1.4 billion to develop this mental health workforce that we're talking about. But like with housing, the state is aiming to plug a really big hole in a system that local officials say has been bleeding out for decades. It's also going to take a few years for these dollars to turn into actual beds and doctors. The other point the administration made is that many of these resources will go toward prioritizing the care court population, which could actually ensure that their needs get met. But this isn't the only population that needs help. The administration predicts the courts will serve around 7,000 to 12,000 people a year, which is very far from the entire homeless population or the entire population that needs mental health care. So you're now kind of talking around this sort of civil rights debate, which I know was a big part of the debate and was extremely heated as the care court proposal was working through the legislature last year. Can you fill us in on what some of the basic concerns are? Civil rights groups argued that by making it easier to compel people 
into medical treatment without their consent, care courts would unravel decades of progress for people with disabilities to have the same civil rights as everyone else. Advocates are worried that care court will just ease the path into conservatorship for a lot of folks, which, as I mentioned earlier, restricts far more aspects of a person's life than care court. If you fail to comply with your voluntary care plan, that can be used as evidence in a conservatorship hearing. Advocates argue many of the people on the street want and have sought care, but it's the system that has failed them. So forcing them into treatment is just going to traumatize and further alienate them from these systems that are designed to help them. They also argue the whole court system is designed more for housed voters who are fed up with seeing sick people on the streets than with actually meeting people where they are and providing the care that they need. What you're saying is actually this proposal, critics say, as much or as more for so that house residents don't have to see homeless people on the streets, particularly homeless people who are suffering from obvious mental health concerns, as it is for actually providing services for those who are suffering in that way. Exactly. And especially if we consider the shortage that we were talking about earlier of housing, of mental health care providers, and of beds, those are a lot of the points that they were making. They said if the system was adequately prepared we might not need to force people into care. But we just don't know the answer to that because that's not the way the system has been functioning. What are some of the other civil rights concerns or worries? So civil rights groups were extremely concerned that because a lot of major liberal cities in the U.S. look to California as an example, this might open the floodgates to similar measures that infringe further on the rights of people with disabilities. And many say that's actually what happened in New York. So New York City Mayor Eric Adams in November announced a major push to involuntarily hospitalize people who were a danger to themselves, even if they didn't pose a risk of harm to others, arguing that the city had a moral obligation to help them. They face many of the same problems that we do in California, though, where hospitals often discharge people suffering from mental health issues back onto the streets because there aren't enough beds. Civil rights groups are trying to halt that order in court, just like groups in California threatened to do when the CARE Act was passed. L.A. is another place worth mentioning here because, as my colleague Hannah recently reported, the county just volunteered to also get the court system running this year, even though it wasn't among the original groups spelled out in the bill. And it's huge news considering the massive size of the county and its disproportionately large homeless population. So what happened in L.A.? We don't have all the details, but the governor's office announced earlier this month that L.A. would be kicking off the court system a year early. And it was interesting in my mind when I read Hannah's story about this to see support from new L.A. mayor Karen Bass. Her influence may well be a reason why L.A. is jumping forward. A key question that remains unanswered is whether the L.A. County Board of Supervisors would need to vote on the plan for the county to join the program. But a voting majority, three out of the five of the supervisors, already expressed support for starting care court this year in a public statement. Seems like even if there were a vote, it would be supported. The county mental health director said they didn't expect to be in the first group of counties, but of course they would rise to the challenge. Quote, There never is a convenient time to implement this kind of large-scale program, but the level of need out there is so great that we can't put it off any longer. So we've talked a bunch about this interesting new law and all that it might entail, 
But at the end of the day, Liam, we just don't know what's in the cards for this year. However, we can talk with someone who might know a little more. We're going to talk with Veronica Kelly, the Director of Behavioral Health Services for Orange County, because her county is in that first cohort, and they've been working on blueprints for a few months to implement this new court system. So right before we jump into our conversation with Veronica, let me give a little Gimme Shelter book club recommendation. So I just finished this a new book called Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder, who is a renowned journalist and author that talks about some of these same issues. He follows a mental health professional who does street medicine in Boston. A very interesting story that gets into some of these issues about forced treatment or not, or when the right time for people to come off the streets may be, and a lot of the trauma that homeless residents face. And so highly recommended book to take a deeper look and a very human look at many of these issues. Maybe we can have a book club in 2023. That'd be great. New segment. So with that, let's jump into our conversation with Veronica. We're here with Veronica Kelly, Director of Behavioral Health Services for Orange County, who is in charge of implementing the new care court legislation for her county. Veronica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we know Orange County already has a drug court and a mental health court. Can you tell us a little bit about those and how things might change with the new care court? Well, collaborative courts have been in existence for a number of decades. And in Orange County, we not only have a number of drug courts, we also have DUI court. We have mental health court, veterans court, and homeless court. And then in 2014, we stood up the assisted outpatient treatment or AOT court, which is related to Laura's law. And that originated in 2004 with the death of a young woman named Laura Wilcox in Nevada County who was murdered by somebody who had untreated mental illness. And so the idea of assisted outpatient treatment is that if someone meets criteria of having a number of episodes, inpatient hospitalizations, or violent acts within the last 24 to 36 months, they could then be brought before the court and be ordered by the court into outpatient treatment The idea there is that they would be part of the treatment services themselves, they would get treated, thereby increase their level of functioning and community and such uh, tragedies wouldn't happen. There is, however, if someone chooses not to engage in services, there is no teeth in that law. And that's probably the closest we have to care court, which is targeted very specifically to people who are experiencing schizophrenia spectrum disorder or related psychotic disorders, and be likely not to survive if they continue to have their illness not treated in community. And so someone can petition them to the court, and they can do the entire process as well, that they would see a judge, just like in our other collaborative courts. But there's a period of time before they actually get into the court system where our team, or the county behavioral health team, there's an opportunity for us to also voluntarily activate these individuals into treatment rather than go through the court system, which again is more traumatic. So you mentioned Laura's Law. This sounds a lot like care court. What exactly is new here and what can we actually expect to see change? So I think the big difference is the diagnoses. With Laura's Law, there's no specific diagnosis that has to be present. With care, it's very specific. It's schizophrenia. So while we see it, in Orange County is that care court is another tool with which county behavioral health can 
be notified of a person who might be in need of treatment. It's nothing different, really. We do these sort of services every day. It's civil, unlike our other collaborative courts where somebody has to actually commit an offense, get into the court that way. This does allow them to enter in a different way, but it is very similar to assisted outpatient treatment. I understand the differences between those who may be eligible for the various courts, but what is the practical difference for someone who is pursuant to, say, Laura's Law versus one that is in care court? There is a different role. The role is of a supporter. So in care, an individual can bring a family member with them. But I will tell you, as a clinician, we would allow you, everyone, to bring in a family member. That's nothing new. If this very similar law has been in place for so long, are we going to see less people, as we see now, suffering on the street? Well, I think that's an interesting correlation you make about being unhoused and having mental illness. And I think what we know, all of our national standards, all the data we have, even locally, looking at our point in time count, about 30% of people who are unhoused have a serious mental illness. But about 60% have an untreated physical health illness. Maybe about 50% have a diagnosable substance use disorder. Lots of folks who are living unhoused might be misusing substances, but they don't all meet criteria for a substance use disorder. So I don't know that this will necessarily alter that. Part of what we have to do with care is ensure that we have a housing plan. However, there's no requirement that we have to actually house somebody. So I think that's important too, because the amount of housing available for somebody who has untreated schizophrenia is gonna be minimal. I'm putting someone in care court who has not had their schizophrenia treated for 20 years. I'm not gonna put them in permanent supportive housing. They will blow out of that housing. Housing First, which is an amazing model, doesn't necessarily work as effectively with people who have a serious mental illness. You can put them in the house, but they won't stay. And they also will invite others in. What we need to do is treat someone's mental illness first and then step them down into a place where they can live independently or with their family or however they want to live. Say the patient is homeless. Are you saying treat them and they should remain on the street while they're being treated. Can you clarify that? So if we were going to be treating someone with untreated mental illness, we would want to get them into an appropriate treatment facility to get them stable, which takes a while, and then move them on. So we might put them in a crisis residential facility, which is housing, while we find what would be the next step. Our goal would always be to get the individual back to where they want to be. And in our experience, a lot of that has been returning to family. The reason they left their family is because they had untreated mental illness. So if we can treat that and get them back, in particular, paying attention to cultural issues with some of our folks that we're treating in this county, we'd want to get them back to a place of stability. When Newsom was asked about the differences between Laura's Law and Care Court, one of the things he said was that Laura's Law just wasn't able to impact that many people to the size of the population that was served. (laughs) Again, How is this any different? How will this maybe serve more people? I think it's important to understand that right now in Orange County, we have six people, six, who are active in our assisted outpatient treatment program. They've gone through the court system, all of that six. But while we've been receiving the referrals, we've served 10 times that amount. So the numbers, you have to look at them. If I'm getting 3,000 referrals and off the bat, before even going to court, I can get 1,200 into treatment, that's a success. I think it's just that he's focusing on the wrong numbers. It's not how many are in Laura's Laws programs. It's how many people were voluntarily activated into treatment. 
prior to that being the step that they would need to take. Do you foresee that same thing happening with Care Court? Yes. In fact, we're building up Care Court based on what we've learned from Assisted Outpatient Treatment Court, looking at the same staffing patterns. We are training our staff specifically on standards of care to treat schizophrenia. Our psychiatrists here who work in the county are very versed in complex psychomedication issues because a lot of our folks also have comorbidities. So they have physical health issues happening as well. And that's because some of our medications actually contribute to metabolic disorders like weight gain and diabetes. We want to treat all of that. And we're also going to be standing up a full service partnership. That is very similar to community treatment, which is an evidence-based practice. And in that model, full-service partnership, it's very low ratio of clinician to patient. So it's one clinician for every 10 to 12 patients. And we wrap them with any service they could possibly need, whether it's food stamps or it's psychotherapy or it's medication or transportation or even housing. And that housing would be affiliated with treatment. So we are standing up a full-service partnership specific to care. We did that with assisted outpatient treatment court as well, and it's been very successful. One thing that we're hearing from counties when they're preparing for care court implementation is a dearth of behavioral health care workers. You know, San Diego County recently estimated that it needs about 18,500 new workers by 2027 to meet just that county's demand, which is more than double the current number working in the county right now. I mean, do you believe that the numbers that San Diego, for instance, is putting out there are real? And second, with sort of such shortages, how can this program be expected to be effective? I think those numbers are real. Will we ever, ever reach that? No, not in my lifetime, I don't think. And so we are facing that. In Orange County, we have a 27% vacancy rate. I'm down about 300 clinicians. Sorry, vacancy rate means you have open positions and they're not being filled uh-huh. 27%. Not okay. filled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's an impact. It's not anything that's different in this county as L.A. or San Bernardino. All of us are the nation actually is facing this massive healthcare shortage. So that's a concern. But if I'm basing things on what we did with assisted outpatient treatment, I'm going to be asking for about 10 staff to address the engagement portion and work with the court. And then we will probably contract out our full service partnership to a community provider who can do things quicker and less expensive than the county can. They can just stand up services easier. So that's probably how we're going to be moving forward with this. But it is a huge concern, the impact that lack of staffing will have on this, because this is just one of the new initiatives that all counties in the state are having to deal with at the same time. When reporting on Care Court in Sacramento County, I talked with a full service partnership who actually talked about the long wait list to provide even voluntary services to people. Will there be enough services to go around for the existing population as well as this new one? Well, our current population is being served. We have, you know, standards for the public system on how we have to serve folks. And so I don't see us having an issue there. It's the higher levels of care that we're obviously going to have impacts on as well. So when I talked about for care, getting someone treated who might maybe they would need to have a short hospital stay, move into maybe a longer rehabilitation facility, those are the beds that we are lacking. And that's as a state. In Orange County, we have great partners. We have a number of hospitals who we've already talked to about helping us with these programmings. So that in this county, I think is going to be less of an issue. But when we're looking at when 
all of California's 58 counties have to begin this, it's definitely going to be an impact. I want to switch gears a little bit here. When Manuela and I were talking earlier in the episode, we brought up concerns raised by many civil rights groups about potential forced treatment and increased involvement of the court system in mental health care issues. So how does your county's health department plan to ensure that people's rights are not going to be violated in this process? Patient rights are essential. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and that's one of my ethical standards is ensuring the dignity of a person. Our partners in care include our superior court, obviously, and our public defender. And so we are the three groups that are working on this. In fact, the way we've done it with assisted outpatient treatment is public defender and my clinical staff go out and do the outreach together as a team. That way we ensure that we are safeguarding the legal rights, of course, of our patients. We don't want to coerce people into treatment. There, of course, will be times when someone will be a danger to themselves or others, and that will be absolutely the legal thing we have to do. But in all other instances, our focus is to outreach to people, engage them, and voluntarily activate them into treatment. I was the behavioral health director in San Bernardino County, and when I was there, we had a project called Recovery-Based Engagement Support Team, or RBEST. And that program, we found that it takes, on average, for someone who isn't real interested in treatment, and if they're housed, it takes about 20 face-to-face visits before they decide to activate into treatment. If they're unhoused, it takes 40 on average. But once they do agree to treatment, there's a 90% success rate of them staying in treatment for a year, all voluntary. We wanna ensure that everyone has a right to self-determination, being mindful of the fact that if someone is a danger to themselves or others, we also have laws that will allow us to get them treatment. But isn't there more pressure as it relates to this program, given the potential involvement of law enforcement and others to say, make this referral at point of contact number 25, when you're saying someone and typically take someone 40 visits to voluntarily agree. And so is there not, given the way this program is structured, more of a risk of someone being forced into something before they're ready? No, I don't think so. I think the way the petitioning process happens, whoever's going to petition somebody to get into court has to show up. So there's that. Initially, we had heard some cities might be thinking, we're just going to scoop all these people who are living on our streets up and drop them off to court. It's your job. It's not. The petitioner has to complete all the paperwork. They have to ensure a number of things, and then they have to show up. And if the petitioner doesn't show up, case is dismissed. So that part will keep it in. It's sometimes difficult because of the work that they do for law enforcement to show up for a traffic ticket. So there is that. I don't think that we're going to see what I think we're going to see is what we saw with assisted outpatient treatment. There's a lot of families who have adult children who have mental illness that's untreated. They are going to flood, I think, the court with petitions. And the difficulty is that we have to communicate to them that this is for people who have untreated schizophrenia. Because if someone's already being treated in my system, but maybe their parents aren't real happy with the fact they don't have a job, they're not a candidate for this. The key is going to be in how we communicate what this is and what this isn't to our communities. When it comes to the coercion portion, can you explain a little more? You said earlier that's the last thing that you want. You want it to be as voluntary as possible. But there are certain tools that Care Court provides that were previously unavailable if someone is resistant to treatment. And there are limitations to that as well, such as being unable to force medication. Can you explain a little bit if someone is resistant, does not want to participate, 
what follows. There are not a lot of other things that can happen. I mean, the key is that our engagement team of clinicians will do what we do best, which is build rapport and trust with the client. It's going to take a while. That's what is going to need to happen, like we saw in assisted outpatient treatment. But if somebody doesn't agree to go to court and they don't meet criteria for a 5150 hold, being a gravely disabled or a danger to self or others, that's it. What the act itself does talk about is that people could, if they make criteria for, that they could be moved into care court. In the same way, there's also the ability for someone who has been deemed incompetent to stand trial, who would then have to sit in a jail and be restored to competency, which means they would be able to participate in their own defense, who was arrested of a crime. Those folks could also be sent over to care which just, again, gives them another opportunity for voluntary treatment. It really is an opportunity for the county to be presented with somebody who might be able to receive services and benefit, and then it will be up to us and their family and their supporter and the court and the public defender to figure out how do we get them services now? How do we get them to engage in services voluntarily? So tell us a little bit about standing up this new program. You've been in conversations with the other seven counties that are implementing the program first. Can you tell us a little bit what those conversations have looked like and which are the questions that you're working out? We all basically are building off of what we've already done. It really is clear for this to work that there has to be a positive working relationship between all the parties. So that means that the court has to be really understanding about the mental health process And we have to all be able to work effectively to ensure that the patient's rights are being attended to with our public defender. And so a number of those counties that are first cohort also have assisted outpatient treatment. All of our counties have collaborative courts. They all know how to do the work. I think it really is going to hinge upon the relationship between the court and the providers of service. What details are you still working out or is it pretty much ready to go? I wish it was ready to go. It's not... (laughs) Right now, the petition forms, that's really important because the devil is definitely in the details. We need to make the distinction between a care agreement, which is when somebody voluntarily goes into services, versus a care plan, which means they've advanced into the court proceedings. So we're working out the paperwork right now, and then we'll have a good idea of what the process should be, how one petitions, how it moves forward, when behavioral health does their evaluation, those sorts of things. As to what specific treatment people are doing, since we all deal with schizophrenia, spectrum disorder in our everyday lives as far as county behavioral health, I think we have a good handle on that. It really is the nexus of the court and the public defender and bringing families or the supporters into this. And I think really managing expectations for the community who often still see this as being a solution to homelessness. I want to follow up on that because... Certain people are pitching this as a solution to homelessness or at least a certain kind of homelessness, but you're talking about it as not that. Can you explain a little bit further what you mean? Well, I think politics is alive and well in our everyday lives. And so that is a big part of this. Housing is part of this in that everyone has to have a housing plan. That's not new. However, the governor has graciously continued in his budget behavioral health bridge housing. And so that's money that will be delivered to each county. And the strings on that money is that we use that to prioritize care participants. Now, what that looks like, we're waiting to see the information notice to see how we can use it. But that might allow us to, let's say, get a hotel room for a certain amount of time or be able to pay for a bed in a shelter. 
there are those types of things we can use the bridge housing for. We don't know what it looks like yet because it has not been released. But in addition, the governor often talks about the $2 billion in behavioral health care infrastructure money that he allocated last budget. And in this county, we've drawn down 37.6 million of those dollars available to us. But I have to start care in October and I haven't seen that money yet. I've been awarded it, but there's no way I can build anything in nine months. So the funds are coming, but we don't have the infrastructure yet. And so it's a little premature, which is how the state likes to do things, I think, when it comes to behavioral health. Build the plane while we're flying it, always. L.A. was just announced that they're being added to this program early. So how does having the biggest county in the state affect your preparation? Yeah, well, we've all gotten our money. So I'll just say that. So there was $51 million at the first cohort got. I think we got 36 split up amongst us. So I think in Orange County, we got about $7.1 million, one time only, one time only. So I want to stress that. It's going to cost me about $4.5 million a year to run my program, but I got one time only of seven point one. I don't know where L.A. County is getting their dollars. I reached out myself to Lisa Wong, their interim director, to see. Nobody knows. I think in February on Valentine's Day, we'll hear more about L.A. joining our cohort team. But yeah, your guess is probably better than mine. Thank you so much for listening to Give Me Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. This, as we say, is important so that new people can discover our podcast and learn more about housing issues. We get engineering and editing support from Victor Figueroa. Victor, we appreciate you. Thanks so much. I am Liam. I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters. My Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening.